All right, good morning, church. Good to see you all here this morning. We're going to continue our time of worship as we open God's Word. So I hope you got a Bible with you. Open it up to Acts chapter 9. We're going to read it in bites as we do when we have longer sections of Scripture to read. So I'm just going to read the first nine verses to us for now. Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Now Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, that is the Christian way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord, Saul said. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting, he replied. But get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the sound, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they took him by the hand and led him into Damascus. He was unable to see for three days and did not eat or drink. Sometimes God gets adamant about giving people mercy. Sometimes he brooks no refusal. Sometimes he, he, he doesn't take no for an answer. He is adamant about giving mercy to sinful people. He's adamant about giving mercy to broken people. Question for us, the name of the message is a faith that comes full circle. So how, how can we as a church be the, the kind of place where faith is coming full circle, where people hear the message of the gospel, where Jesus, they encounter Jesus in the proclamation of the truth about Jesus, but then they come to faith, and then there's all these other dynamics of the working of the church and the development of their calling, where people find the two things we've needed most since the fall of man. So remember, in, in Genesis chapter three, humankind, Adam and Eve, fell away from God, turned their backs on God, walked the other way and broke the universe. Sin and curses and misery came pouring into the world, into our, our relationships with one another horizontally, into our relationship with God. There's a chasm between us, sinful humanity and a holy God. Since the fall, people are needing two things, redemption and belonging. So how can we become a church where people find the two things we've needed most since we broke the world, redemption and belonging. And that's what you see happening here. Saul of Tarsus experiences both redemption and belonging. He gets forgiveness and he gets family. He gets forgiveness. He's reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. But also Ananias' first words when he comes up is, Brother Saul. Ananias, if you asked him the day before, who's the last person you think you're going to look at tomorrow and say, Brother Saul? He's saying, it's that guy, right? Saul of Tarsus is the last person he thinks is going to become a believer, but now your family. That's what Ananias says. So what do we see first? We see a few things. Number one, gospel confrontation. Gospel confrontation. You see there in verse one, now Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. You just think about the person you know who's least likely to become a devoted follower of Jesus. And if we pulled into, time traveled, into Acts chapter nine, verse one, the person everybody thinks is the least likely to become a devoted follower of Jesus the Messiah is Saul of Tarsus. 
But Saul is gonna walk into Acts chapter nine as Saul the persecutor and he's gonna walk out proclaiming the gospel of the Jesus he hated five minutes ago. There's an absolute 180 transformation. And you think about who this guy is, right? So the profile, the resume of Saul of Tarsus his pre-conversion life, before he meets Jesus, he's, we don't get this picture of a man who's, um, who's exhausted from living on the hamster wheel of works-based religion. He's not exhausted by religion. He's never felt better in his life. Jesus doesn't pull up next to Saul after Saul has walked an aisle, after Saul has prayed a prayer. Jesus doesn't pull up next to Saul, you know, when Saul says, I feel like there's a God-shaped void in my heart that only Jesus can fill, right? That's not what's going on in this text. He's busy killing Christ's people when Jesus comes up and says, why are you doing this? Sometimes God gets adamant about giving sinful people mercy and you see God moving in with thunderous effectiveness in verse three. As he traveled, suddenly. <laughs> so there's, there's Saul doing what Saul does, what Saul knows how to do, what Saul has an explanation and even a theology to explain why he's doing what he's doing. And suddenly God comes in like a storm and, uh, and takes Saul for himself. Just transforms his whole perspective in this moment. And it's a painful experience for Saul, right? I mean, actually physically painful. He's knocked onto his back, he's blind. He's not gonna be seeing for three days. All right, this is, a, this is an experience where you get salvation and a bottle of Advil, right? You're, you need both of these. This is a dramatic encounter between God and Saul of Tarsus, which actually, this isn't the first time that salvation can be a fairly painful, conversion can be a fairly painful experience. You go all the way back to the patriarch, Jacob himself. Jacob, whose name will also be changed from Jacob to Israel. On the day that Jacob's name was changed to Israel, you know what happened? An angel from God finds Jacob at the river Jabbok and the angel doesn't come to him and whisper sweet nothings in his ear. He doesn't whisper gospel promises. He puts him in a headlock. He wrestles Jacob. Then he, after they've wrestled for a while, he just touches Jacob's hip socket and Jacob's gonna walk with a limp for the rest of his life because of this encounter that he has with God at the Jabbok River. But he walks away limping with a new name. He is utterly transformed, right? There was, um, there was a Circle K across the street from Grace King High School where I went to school in New Orleans. And, um, and that Circle K is where everybody met for fights. Uh, and I literally learned this the first day of school in high school at Grace King. I was nervous because I, I had heard that Grace King, you know, I was coming from Adams Middle School, which wasn't an amazing place, a uh, nonviolent place, but I had heard Grace King w- had a lot of issues and a lot of fighting. So I go in kind of new, first day, freshman year, and I walk in. There's a guy named Ben. He would become a close friend of mine. We graduated together. There's a guy named Ben sitting in front of me who, who I met. And then there was a guy in the back of the classroom who started talking smack to Ben. He just didn't like, I don't remember what he didn't like about Ben, but he made everybody know it. And he was uh, tearing into Ben. And Ben got really tired. And Ben turns around and he says, uh, I'll meet you at Circle K after school. And this is the first time, I kid you not, I, 
I remember this so well. It's the first time I ever heard the phrase, I'll be there with bells on. The guy in the back of the classroom said, I'll be there with bells on. And we would find out that afternoon why he was so confident. And we would find out the next day when there was a big shiner and a busted lip on Ben's face, why this guy could say, I'll be there with bells, come to my house. Circle K is my house, right? As I'm there all the time, right? That's kind of what's going on here. He, there's the sense in which Ben discovered that afternoon why the other guy had so much swagger, so much confidence in how things would go down at the end of the day. Well, well God's truth collides with human ego and it causes an inevitable confrontation. Human pride and God's truth get into a showdown regularly. Matter of fact, if you read the pages of the Gospels, it seems like Jesus lives at Circle K with the Pharisees. He says, hey, let's talk about this across the street, <laughs> right? Because he's confronting human pride. He's confronting religious, moralistic pride. And there's this confrontation with human ego and it doesn't go well for them. And yet there's this confidence in the truth. Listen, so as a church, we talk about sin a lot. And we talk about sin without apology. Why, why do we talk about sin? Why do, we, why do we even talk about sin's specific distortions? Greed, lust, hatred, bitterness, self-righteousness. Why, why do we talk about stuff like that? Why do we even sing about it? Why do we sing about how we participated in the attempted overthrow of the creator, which landed us in the unenviable position of deserving his wrath? Why do we sing stuff like that? And I just want to answer the question by saying, we don't sing it because we love to be morbid about stuff. We don't sing those truths because we love getting buried under a sense of guilt. That's not why. We sing it, we do that, and we say that because we won't feel the glory of the remedy if we haven't grasped the enormity of the problem. We won't feel the glory of the remedy if we haven't grasped the enormity of the problem. That's why Acts 9 feels like Circle K. It feels like it's happening across the street from Grace King High School. J.C. Ryle, um, one of history's kind of best dead guys, 150 years ago, he's writing all kinds of great stuff. And here's one of the things that Ryle said. The plain truth is that a right knowledge of sin lies at the root of all saving Christianity. Without it, doctrines of justification, conversion, sanctification are words and names which convey no meaning to the mind. The first thing therefore that God does when he makes anyone a new creature in Christ is to send light into his heart and show him that he is a guilty sinner. That's Acts 9. Light comes shining onto the road to Damascus Saul's not going to see for three days and there's a confrontation event between the Lord Jesus Christ ascended and risen and ascended and Saul of Tarsus breathing out threats against Christianity. We, um, we need a clear gospel. We need a gospel that presents sin as such a, such a vital part of who you are or who you were a sin which is a condition that's so baked into the human condition that only the crucifixion and resurrection of the God-man would suffice for your rescue. That's a clear 
gospel. The gospel confronts my sin right before it sets me free. And it does both, right? But sometimes in our culture, we have this desire and inclination to run around the uncomfortable parts of the gospel to get to the blessing that comes to those who follow Jesus. But it's on the far side of the discomfort. It's on the far side of the humility that comes when we see the holiness of God and the sinfulness of ourselves that now we sing amazing grace from the heart. Now we're not yawning our way through worship. We get what we deserve. We understand. We grasp that. And yet we grasp the amazing grace that we've been shown. Here's the the real sad irony, though, is we can talk about sin on our way to the threshold of entering into the household of faith. And then we get into the household of faith and suddenly there's this smirk on our faces about the sins of those people. The sins of the world around us. Look, we don't talk about the sins of the world with smirks on our faces, just the opposite. We don't talk about the sin problem from the outside. We talk about the sin problem from inside. We know it. We've tasted it. We've felt it from the inside. So thankful God didn't come and speak superficially to the deepest needs in my life. He didn't put band-aids on bullet holes. He told me how bad it was. In the gospel, there's clarity. He didn't say, Matt, you got to step up your game spiritually. He said, Matt, the case is terminal but I raised the dead. The case is terminal. I need you to trust me. Repent and believe. I raised the dead. So thankful that God didn't just inform me as if I could will myself back from the dead. That's what Ephesians 2 is there for. You were dead. You weren't moving. You weren't mobile in God's direction. You weren't seeking him, Romans chapter 3 says. Nobody was good. Nobody was seeking after God. Nobody was hunting him out or searching for him. He searched for us. C.S. Lewis called it the mouse's search for the cat. When we realize we find ourselves feeling like we're searching for God, but actually this is the mouse's search for the cat. He was already had us in his crosshairs. He caused what was dead to come alive. If you're a Christian, that's your story. He caused what was dead to come alive. We sang a song when I was growing up in church and we would clap on two and four. He brought me out of the miry clay. He set my feet on a rock to stay. He put a song in my soul today, a song of praise, hallelujah. Y'all know that song? Look, we would sing that song and we'd sing it 10 times and then we'd change keys and sing it 10 more times. And then it just seems like they're not getting it. So let's change keys and let's sing it 10 more times, right? The idea was sing it until it breaks in on us. Sing it until it clicks. Sing it until the penny drops. And we realize we got mercy. We were stuck. We were in clay. We weren't moving. And now we find ourselves with feet on a rock. How did this happen? Gospel's how that happened. Saul starts singing it right here in Acts chapter 9. What is conversion? Conversion is rescue. It's you unstuck from what was holding you. It's feet on a rock. It's a song in the heart. God doesn't merely invite people into freedom. He frees them. That's the best news. (laughs) He doesn't merely invite us into freedom. He frees us. How does that happen, right? Again, it happens in a pretty painful way in Acts 9. Verse 3, Jesus blinds the man. 
Verse four, he knocks him to the ground. Verse five, he asks awkward questions about his life choices. Then he gives a list of commands in verse six. He says, here's what I need you to do. Get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. I mean, this is Jesus, large and in charge. Saul thought he was large and in charge, issuing you know, death sentences and death orders and prison sentences to all these Christians. And Jesus says, get up, I'm gonna tell you what I'm ordering you to do next. It's just this commands. He's bringing him out of darkness and into light. The, the, um, the theology that says God is always a gentleman should be slightly amended to say God is always a gentleman except when he's not. There's an account in Acts chapter 26 of Paul's conversion, not gonna turn there, but you add one more detail to what happened when Jesus met him on the road Jesus says to Paul, why are you persecuting me? And Jesus says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads, which is really not an expression we use around here very much. But a goad was a sharp stick that you used to move livestock. <laughs> it, it hurt. If you tried to go the other way, the goad said, no, it's forward. It's not back. That, there's pain back there. Move forward. That's what the goad did. Jesus is saying, Saul, it's painful if you turn back. It's actually better for you. The, the best way is forward. <laughs> Trusting in me. You're kicking against the goads. You're only hurting yourself. I would imagine if we took time uh, this afternoon, we just opened up microphones and said, hey, let's, let's start telling each other the stories of how we came to faith in Jesus. There would be stories of people who came painfully and people who came less painfully. The woman who comes to faith in, her name is Lydia, in Acts chapter 16, she's not knocked on her back. She doesn't need ibuprofen when, the, when this encounter is over. It just says the Lord opened her heart to believe what was spoken the guy we just met last week in Acts chapter eight, the Ethiopian eunuch, what does he need? He just needs somebody to explain to him what he's reading here in the Bible. No painful experience attached to his conversion. So here's, here's my recommendation. Don't wait to follow Jesus until you hit rock bottom. Come the easy way. Don't kick against the goads. Give him your life, trusting it really is best to follow him. There really is life. The enemy really does come to, to steal and kill and destroy, and he really has come to give me abundant life. Why would I push against the goads when I can follow him? Gospel confrontation, second gospel identity. So notice how Jesus speaks of his church in verse four. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me. And you might want to add, well, well, technically, he wasn't persecuting Christ. He was persecuting the people who were preaching Christ. But that's just the point. Jesus identifies so closely with his church. He identifies in the most close possible way. He doesn't just say, why are you persecuting these Christians? He doesn't even say, why are you persecuting my church, would be even, which would be a little bit closer than these Christians. It's pulling them close. It's saying, they belong to me my church. No. He says, why are you persecuting me? And that's because the church is Christ's bride. The two have become 
one flesh, Paul says in Ephesians chapter five, and he says, I'm not talking about the man and the woman that you saw walk the aisle. I'm talking about Christ and the church. The two have become one flesh. Harm done to the bride is harm done to the husband. The two are one. Harm done to the bride is harm felt by the husband. There's a sense that Jesus is pulling his church in to this place of absolute intimacy and nearness. Greatest experience of belonging in the world is found in belonging to Jesus. I remember when I was about five, I was all dressed up. It was a Sunday morning, so I'm dressed up in my Sunday best. We were ready to go to church, but family was still in there getting dressed, and I, um, I asked my parents, hey, could I go for a, a, a quick little bike ride? And they said, yeah. And I walked outside, I saw my bike, and then I saw my sister's bike, and hers just looked faster. And, uh, and it had that, you know, the bar that was at an angle for girls' bikes, and so I thought, I could ride this. Like, I don't have to be as tall as my sister because I can kind of stand up and, and bike. So I got on the bike, and I kind of went a little bit, the slight slope, it's the only, only hill in New Orleans, the slight slope uh, down toward the street, and I'm going down, and I... I remember losing control, and the next thing I remember is uh, waking up on the street. So I, I remember um, hearing what sounded like a car coming down the street, and then I woke up, and I, I just came up and realized I was face down on the pavement. I didn't feel pain uh, that I remember, so I, I grabbed the bike, I started heading inside, and mom was just coming outside and she just screamed like buddy murder. So I must have not been looking all that great, which is why I, don't, I didn't take my kindergarten graduation pictures because mom's like, they're gonna call DHR. Like uh, I was busted up in a bad way for uh, kindergarten. And so they rushed me to the emergency room and I'm, I'm in there, long story short, mom runs me inside while dad's park, parking the car and they laid me down. They were doing all these different things to me. And, um, I have no idea, to this day, I have no idea why they wouldn't let my dad come down the hall to the room that I was in, but I remember hearing him make an issue about it. And I remember hearing him bellowing down the hall saying, that's my son. And it felt all kinds of awesome. Because really, even in my young mind, I was like, listen, you should move. Uh, the next thing that happens might not be great. Dad sounds really mad right now, right? So your best option is get out of the way and let dad come find his son. There was a tone in his voice that told me all kinds of good things. I knew in that moment, everything's gonna be all right. Dad's bellowing down the hall. He's on the way. Everything's gonna be fine because there's a sense of belonging. I was being claimed by someone who was strong. That's what's going on in Acts 9. You ever had a friend in your life who wove your life and their life together so that your outcomes are their outcomes now? Your friends are their friends now. Your enemies, your fights have become my fights, right? That's an awesome friend somebody who gets all the way into your life and identifies with you, that's what's going on here in Acts chapter nine. You're persecuting me. Where is God when his people are afflicted? Let me make it more personal. Where is God when you 
are afflicted. The answer comes from Isaiah 63, verse 9. In all their affliction, the Lord was afflicted. That's a God who steps all the way inside. In all their affliction, the Lord was afflicted. Jesus doesn't view your affliction from a distance. In Christ, we see the compassion and justice of God. And I say justice because that seems to be what's featured here. Those who persecute the church of Jesus Christ can either repent or they will answer for it eternally. That's not just an idea that comes up at various places in Acts. It comes up in the book of Revelation when it's time to see it in action. It comes up in 2 Thessalonians where Paul is speaking of persecutions that the believers we're enduring and he says you will be counted worthy of God's kingdom since he writes since it is just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted along with us this will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angels when he takes vengeance they will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from his glorious strength on that day when he comes to be glorified by his saints that's Paul saying when Jesus returns his entrance into the world will reverse all the outcomes His arrival will spell relief for all those who are oppressed. For all who belong to Christ. So there's gospel confrontation, there's gospel identity, and finally there's gospel community. Gospel community. Look down in your Bible, verse 10. There was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, here I am, Lord, he replied. Get up and go to the street called Straight, the Lord said to him, to the house of Judas and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul since he is praying there. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in. So God's working both sides of this, right? Saul has already had a vision of you coming, so go. And he's had this vision of Ananias coming in and placing his hands on him so that he, Saul, may regain his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard from many people about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has authority here from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. That's that's called gentle pushback, right? That's, That's Ananias saying, hold on. So this guy's been on the front page of the newspaper, right? This guy is dangerous. Are we sure he's ready? Can you just double check and make sure Saul's ready for me to show up? Look, it it goes on. The Lord said to him, verse 15, go for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. I love verse 17. Ananias went and entered the house and notice what he says when he gets there. He placed his hands on him and said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road you were traveling has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. What a a picture of the church at its most compelling. That's not the church we always see, right? So at its worst, the church can be a pretty ugly place. 
heavy-handed with the brokenhearted. You ever seen that before? Clean on the outside, corrupt on the inside. You ever seen that before? God doesn't give the church of any age, this age included, discretion to make church whatever we want it to be or whatever is convenient or comfortable for us. There's a vision, there's a, there's a blueprint, and it's right here in Acts, and it is stunningly beautiful. Immediately, verse 18, so Ananias lays his hands, prays, immediately scales fall from Saul's eyes. He regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food. He was strengthened. Friends, that's the church. That's the work of the church to this day. What happens in church? In Ananias, we see a picture of the church's life-giving presence in the world. How does that develop? You see the witness of the church in the world. Ananias is doing what? He's testifying to the grace of God. God is granting sight through his witness. People are getting a new start. People are entering into the waters of baptism and being washed clean from all their sins. You see this witness, this clarity of the gospel. Then you see welcome. The most unlikely people are becoming family. Ananias says, brother Saul, again, the day before he would never have imagined that he would call Saul brother Often God heals, we see this already, we've seen this in the book of Acts. Often God heals and strengthens and confirms his call on our lives through other people. God could have done this directly. Jesus knocked him off the horse directly. And yet when it's time for him to regain his sight and be strengthened and eat some food, here comes Ananias, a human being, God uses a part of the body of Christ, the church. And speaking of finding his calling, how quickly Paul finds his voice there in verse 20, immediately he proclaimed, this is Saul, proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And there are some people, you can understand it, who are skeptical that Saul might be playing both sides, that he might be a double agent. And so they're not really sure what to do with Saul of Tarsus. And when some doubt that his conversion might not be authentic, what happens in verse 26 and 27? Barnabas says, oh, it's, it's legit. Barnabas, another believer, vouches for Saul. And this, this other picture we see here is renewal and nurture. Taking food, he was strengthened. So when we talk about church membership, we're talking about the mandate to do this. Witness, welcome, renewal, and nurture. So let, let me ask you some pointed questions. Would someone with a checkered past find a message of mercy here? Here's another one. Is this a place where mature believers use words that brand new believers can actually understand? We don't make them jump into the deep end of the theological pool. We use words that they can actually reach up and grab. We put the cookies on the bottom shelf. We make it clear. We meet them where they are. Is this a church where we're applying the word to our lives and discerning what it looks like to live as people of faith in the real world? Let me ask you this. Do we, um, do we want real people to come to faith here? or just those who have been moderately tainted by the world? 
I, um, I have a pastor friend in downtown Birmingham who he loves evangelizing the unchurched and the dechurched. Loves it, lives for it. And uh, he pastors downtown and the, the last person who was baptized in that little congregation was a former pole dancer. And then he told me recently a story about a guy named Roger and uh, Roger was a, a drug addict who spent some time living on the streets in downtown Birmingham until Roger encountered the gospel of Jesus Christ manifested by a truly compassionate and compelling people, that church. And Roger's heart was regenerated and made new and he became a follower of Jesus and he entered into the waters of baptism and he came out a new person and he started opening the front door and welcoming visitors on Sunday mornings and serving in an everyday kind of way in his church. And he got off drugs and he kicked habits and all kinds of newness was flourishing in his life. We fast forward several months and Roger disappears. And my friend says, I was calling his cell phone, no response. He said, I started walking through the downtown areas where I used to see Roger and just started asking me, have you seen Roger? He said, eventually after some weeks, we started to actually assume maybe the worst about what might have happened to Roger and, and then Roger showed up again on a Sunday morning and he said, let me, let me explain what's happened. He said, uh, he said I fell off the wagon um, and he said, I had so much shame for going back to the life that I was rescued from. He said, I didn't want to look believers in the face after what I had done. And so he said, for, for a few weeks there, I just dove all the way back in. He said, matter of fact, I was thinking about leaving town so I wouldn't bump into people. And he said, so I, I bought a bus ticket to Nashville. He said, I got to Nashville and literally the moment, Roger said, the moment my feet hit the pavement, walking off the bus, the thought occurred to me, you've just left the only family you ever had. And he said it was so clear in his mind and in his heart, he said, I just literally turned right back around, bought a token back, got back on the bus, and he said, I had to come back to the Lord and I had to come back, really, to you. This is my family. This is where I belong. That's faith coming full circle. You want, what do we want as a church? Do you want nominal Christianity that pats us on the head and leaves our God substitutes unconfronted? Is that what we want? You want to hold needy people at arm's length or you want to welcome them into grace? You want to see faith come full circle in the lives of sexual misfits like the Ethiopian eunuch that we saw last week in Acts chapter 8 and religious terrorists like Saul in Acts chapter 9? If you do, we have to be the real church. The sounds you hear in a church where faith doesn't stagnate but faith comes full circle sounds like the very kinds of things that we recite to one another when we read our church covenant. And here's a portion of it I'll close with this. Together, we, real church, will spur one another on to love and good deeds. We will meet with one another consistently, 
pray for one another regularly and serve one another selflessly. We will share each other's joys and bear each other's burdens. We will edify one another with our speech and encourage one another with our example. In a word, when faith comes full circle, we help people learn to sing on day one, he brought me out of the miry clay. He set my feet on a rock to stay. He puts a song in my soul today. We teach them to sing the gospel. We create a culture and an environment of good news in which people can grow up in the faith.